was in the year 2000. Before that, in the year 2000, well, um, that's today, but in the year 2000, it was 12 seconds. So in 12 seconds, that means we lost one-third of our attention span in less than 20 years. So when my wife wants my attention for a minute, and I give her a minute, I'm above average, honey. I'm above average. <laughs> so what the service tell us is that our life is increasingly out of focus, and we're addicted to the tyranny of the urgent. And that's why our minds can't stand more than 8 or 12 seconds of time of focus. In the 1960s, a person named Charles Hummel wrote a small pamphlet that became widely used in the business networks, uh, networks, and it was entitled The Tyranny of the Urgent. And at its core was the following idea. We live in a constant tension between what is urgent and what is important. And it's hard to make the difference of what is urgent and what is important. The problem is that many important tasks that we think need to be done today can wait. But we rush because of the tyranny of the urgent that we need them done today. And we can learn some patience from the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in this passage concerning this. Because the tyranny of the urgent is the illusion of self-sufficiency. The tyranny of the urgent is that I don't need any outside help. I can do everything myself. And when we apply this as followers and disciples of Jesus, and we submit to the slavery of the tyranny of the urgent, we begin to create the kingdom of God in our own strength instead of relying on the strength of the Father. We begin to juggle our schedules, making everything so nice to fall in place because we rather have it our way than his way because of the tyranny of the urgent. We fit everything else into our lives except that go away or that hideaway journey to the closet of prayer, as Jesus shows us. I love what this person said. How can I lead people into the quiet place beside the still waters if I am in perpetual motion? How can we, as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, lead anybody to the still waters if all we do is submit to the tyranny of the urgent and we're in perpetual motion? going somewhere, but at the same time, going nowhere. Jesus was obviously a very busy man, but he was not addicted to busyness. He was a very busy man, but he was not enslaved to the tyranny of the urgent or other people's opinions of who he is and what he's called to do. So after a late night of ministry and the heaviness of ministry and the weight of ministry, Jesus goes back to where it all started, the wilderness the desert. So he gets up in the morning and he leaves the disciples to pray alone. We read, we heard it read that when it was still dark and while the others were still sleeping, Jesus rose early and disappeared. He left the building just like Alvis. He left the building. They can't find him. And he withdraws deliberately. He wants to get away from the crowd. And he rises early before dawn. Because he probably doesn't want the attention of the crowds or anyone to notice him because they will start to follow him. Because for them, he is a new miracle worker. He is Jesus Christ's superstar, but he is not Lord Jesus Christ the Messiah. Big difference. He's the popular one who healed the people the day before, and that's what they want, the superstar. 
but they don't want the Lord Messiah crucified, risen, ascended, Son of God. It was a different Jesus. And Jesus leaves. See, the crowdedness of the town of Capernaum would make it nearly impossible for Jesus to leave and find a place to be alone. It was a busy, active, very heavy populated, dense place. And in those towns and in those ancient villages, the houses were very narrow, much like the Middle East is today or in southern Italy as well. And you used to fit about 10 to 20 people in one room, crammed in there. They're staying at Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house. Remember that? She was cured last week. So I asked myself, how did Jesus manage to get up in the midst of a small crowd of people and still find his way outside? And how early does he have to get up to beat the crowds? Well, you know that they didn't have clocks in those days, right? So they went when the sun went up, and when the sun came up, most people just went out to work, right? So Jesus had to get up earlier than they to beat the crowds and not be noticed by them. But he rises early, and he makes his way to a secluded place, and he doesn't want to draw attention. And it's wide, it's still dark, so it's just before the sunrise. See, Mark, unlike Luke, rarely mentions prayer. Rarely. There's three times, really, where he mentions Jesus praying. And that's number one here, number two at the feeding of the 5,000, and number three in Gethsemane. But all the times that Mark mentions prayer, it's for our, for our learning, for our teaching, that it's important because it's a critical turn in the ministry of Jesus. See, Mark understands something's about to happen because Jesus went to pray. While his disciples slept, Jesus gets up to pray. He deliberately goes alone to be by himself in order to talk to the Father. One of the best definitions I found on prayer comes from Eugene Peterson. We've mentioned it a few times, but if you don't remember, I'm going to say it again. See, prayer is more important than needs, and this is what Eugene Peterson says. Prayer is not a job assigned by us to God, nor is it a transfer of information between earth and heaven, God knows our condition and God knows our prayers and our needs. Prayer, like the best conversations on earth, they cultivate intimacy, right? They nurture obedience. It becomes a way of working and walking with God, a very important image in the Jewish mind. In prayer, we do not make speeches to God. In prayer, we're building a relationship with God. Because we're cultivating intimacy with God. It's not about bringing your needs to God. It's about submitting to the God and deciding to build a relationship with him. Because if you ain't praying, you don't have a relationship with God. Oh, that hurts. How can we say we're a friend of God and we don't want to talk? So Jesus, after an exhausting day of healing and driving out evil spirits, surely deserved a time of rest, didn't he not? They should have given him some slack. No, but they're there knocking, knocking. They're coming early, pounding on the door because they want Jesus Christ, superstar. But they don't want to follow Jesus Christ, Messiah, Lord, Savior, Son of God. What a demanding day Jesus felt. And he deserved every rest that he could get. And he was probably still tired when he got up in the morning. 
But he knew that he had to build a relationship with the Father. He knew that he had to hear from the Father what direction he must go. See, Jesus wasn't finding time to be with God because he fully understood that time belongs to him. You follow me? He wasn't finding a time for a quiet time because all my time is God's time. And all God's time is my time. And that's the realm I live in right now. So I don't find time for God because it's his time anyway. I submit to God's time. Hello? His time was his father's time. And his life was one of availability to the master, to the God that was the father. We've used this passage in the past. A lot of people have spoken about the quiet time. And it is a good thing to have a quiet time. But this is much more than finding time for God. It's submitting your time to God. Big difference. As someone once said, I know quite a few people will never miss their 5.30 a.m. quiet time. But during the rest of the day, they were meaner than a junkyard dog. So having a quiet time doesn't mean you're following God. Or that you paid attention, as we said a couple of weeks in our midweek study. It's not about going through the scriptures. It's about the scriptures going through you. Reading you. And then as they challenge you to let them mold you and shape you into the image of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, not Jesus, the superstar. So many Christians want to be the superstar, but not many want to follow him to the cross. And that's where Mark's bringing us, but not yet, not yet. You know, it's possible to have daily quiet times and never be available to God. Hello? To have your quiet time and read the scriptures and read the nice devotion and when availability comes as part of the package, you say, no, I don't got time. I'm not going to go there. See, availability is the hallmark of a disciple of Jesus Christ, the one who follows. What do you suppose Jesus prayed about? Did you ever th think that way? What's Jesus praying about? And then you get even more upset because Mark doesn't tell us. Good that he doesn't tell us because some of you were repeating those words to get the same result that Jesus did. So you're supposed to use your imagination because it's about building a relationship. It's about cultivating intimacy. It's about nurturing obedience. It's about walking in obedience. It's about following Jesus and loving the Father and building your friendship with him. Jesus simply wanted to be alone with the Father and pray. pray. And I don't blame him one bit. We all need those times, right? Times away from people. Times away from the phone ringing. Times away from the television screaming. CNN News or CBC News 24-7. And after the humpteen time, I don't know why we still keep our televisions on. Because we heard it all before. But we're there glued because we're, we're enslaved to the tyranny of the urgent. And there I miss another news item that might intercede that I didn't hear the previous 24-7 hours. God have mercy. See, Jesus knew that not everyone was following with pure intentions. And most of the people were looking for miracles. That church looking for looking for Santa Claus God. Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, says these words. Mark not only wants to draw our attention away from the mirror, he wants to draw our attention away from conventional teaching. He wants us to tell a story and present situations that bring us up short. He doesn't want us to go away discussing the interesting ideas that Jesus has or the poignant stories that he tells. He wants you to focus on the person of Jesus. 
He wants you to look into the eyes of Jesus. He wants you to pray that song because when you sing, you pray twice. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I don't want to see Jesus Christ, superstar. I want to see Jesus, the Messiah, don't you? Meanwhile, in this passage, and these disciples are just early, early students of Jesus. They failed to see that the greatest miracle of all was right in their midst. God became man. See, Jesus knew his need of a God-given sense of direction, so he prays. And Mark is beginning to establish a rhythm, a rhythm that belongs to every disciple of Jesus. Because the ultimate model of discipleship is Jesus, not the disciple. You want to learn to be a disciple? Don't look at Peter and John and James and Judas and the other Judas. You look to Jesus. You look to Jesus. You set your bar high, not low. Well, I'm like Peter. Well, so what? I want to be like Jesus. That's what Mark's trying to get our attention, even if Peter's directing his pen as he writes. See, the rhythm is prayer, mission, prayer. Mission, lives being restored. Prayer, mission, lives being restored. Again, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You love that? You love that? This is the Jesus we're called to follow. So what happens next? The disciples search to find Jesus. But as a sideboard, Jesus is still, have a, still has a heavy heart for those people he healed, for those demons he cast out, those people, the people, not the demons, but the people that he made whole for the, for the mother-in-law that he touched and cured. Jesus has a heart for the sick and their need of a divine physician. The next day, the disciples search to find Jesus, and the disciples wake up, and there's no Jesus in there. He's God. How could he do this? Disappear. When we got just a truckload of people lined up out the street waiting for today's miracle, because they had yesterday's miracle there. And they're there, all lined up. And these guys said, we can't do this. As far as we know, there's only four disciples still, right? Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right? We don't have the other eight included at this time yet. Well, these guys are really probably just in a frenzy right now. Can't figure anything out. So many people in need, and Jesus is gone. Oh. Do you read the same Bible I do? Don't look at me strange. Do you read the same Bible that I do? Read it. See, there's a recurrent theme in, in Mark's gospel, and it goes like this. The difference between Jesus' program and the difference between the disciples' program. The difference between Jesus' program and the difference between the society's program. The difference between Jesus' program and the difference between the church's program. The difference between Jesus' program and the difference between the church board program. The difference. But when we get our eyes on Jesus as the Messiah, things change. Radical change comes. But if all we're doing is following Jesus Christ, superstar, you set yourself up for faith. 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 Then you ask yourself another question. Why didn't Jesus pursue the normal human policy of taking advantage of your population? Isn't that what the world says? When you're popular, take advantage of it. Make all the cash you can because tomorrow I don't know who's going to upset me in the popularity contest. When you're looking for Jesus Christ Superstar, you're looking for the polls, you're looking for the Barner reports, you're looking who won how many Dove Awards, who won how many Juno Awards, who won how many Genie Awards. But that's not the whip gospel. 
gospel is upside down kingdom. You deny yourself and you follow him. Hello? Hello? He was looking for the Father's guidance, not the crowd. He was looking for the Father's stamp of approval. This is my son with whom I am pleased. Not a popularity poll. See, the crowds are gathering at the house. The sick are there. The demon-possessed are there. The mentally ill are there. And they're waiting for Jesus to do something, but he's God. He's God. See, the disciples, they expected Jesus to be there. So what do they do? They start a search party. They start a search party. Read the Bible. It's there. It's only four or five verses there. They start a search party to find Jesus. And some of the ones of your versions, we say, to hunt him down. So the disciples become the hunters, and Jesus becomes the hunted. Hello? The hunters. And then Simon Peter is at the, the head of the four disciples at this time because he thought he can get Jesus and get him back on track. We see that character come up again. Well, I'll just tell Jesus what needs to be done. Because he's a good manager. He's an agent, like a sports agent. This guy, he doesn't understand popularity. Now it's time to cash in on his popularity. Now it's time to cash in on Jesus Christ, superstar. But Jesus says, I'm not that. I'm Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God in the flesh, right before you. And they had a hunch where he may be found. When they finally found Jesus, they interrupt his pirate moments of the meditation to inform him of the situation. What are you doing here, Jesus? There's a whole lineup back here. In Capernaum, don't you know all those people that are, they heard about you healing all those sick and casting out those demons, and they lined up this morning to see a repeat service of Jesus Christ Superstar? And they say these words, everyone's looking for you. Everyone's looking for you. In other words, they're scolding Jesus for his disappearance and basically saying this is not a time to indulge in your private prayer talk. Come out of your private prayer time and get to work. Because <laughs> that's what the people want. That's what the crowds want. Everyone wanted a piece of Jesus, but nobody wanted to experience it. Hello? You want a piece of Jesus. Superstar. He's going to heal me. He's going to give me so much money. He's going to help me find whatever you're looking for. But Jesus offers peace. Peace to the soul. Peace to the mind, wholeness to the body, and knowledge of knowing the Father intimately. So they create more trouble for Jesus than support those disciples. Disciples assume and the crowds demand that things should continue as they did the previous 24 hours, but Jesus has some other priorities. Disciples do not understand Jesus' need for communion with the Father and guidance and direction in life. So Jesus is setting them up, uh, setting them up. And how does he respond to everyone who's looking for you? Read it. Open your Bibles there. Let's go somewhere else. Hello? When people come knocking, the, crowd, the crowds are there. Everybody's waiting for you at the church. Don't you know you should be here? Look at them. Look at them. And then he says, I'm going somewhere else. Somewhere else. I'm thinking beyond Capernaum. And you're thinking of Capernaum. I'm thinking 
uh, building a movement of the Spirit of God moving upon humanity and restoring them and renewing them and refreshing them. And you want to build a museum in Capernaum. The crowds are waiting for you. They're eager, populous, to be satisfied. You can just imagine Simon saying to them, Simon Peter, aren't you going to look after them? And Jesus says, no. <laughs> what do you mean no? Says Simon. I mean no because I'm going elsewhere. Jesus rejects the demand, refused to be enslaved to the tyranny of the urchin. Refuses that. The crowds often dictate agendas. And when you have success, it begins to spawn its own rules, it begins to weave its own rules, and you become enslaved to them. Jesus refused to submit to anyone but the Father. Refuses to submit to anyone but the Father. See, Jesus' primary mission is not to be a wonder worker, but to proclaim the kingdom of God. The cows are not interested in the words of Jesus. People don't come for the word of the Lord. They come for the miracle. They come for Jesus Christ, superstar, and not Jesus Christ, son of God, the Messiah. See, Simon is interested in accommodating this surge in popularity. You can just imagine Peter, because he's going to be Simon Peter. He's going to be the agent of the son of God, so he thinks, right? He's going to be his Good manager, you know, he's going to just manage his book. He's going to go around and he's going to be like a Jerry Maguire, show me the money, right? Because just as Peter's mind, he says, a theme park in Capernaum, right? A worship band 24-7 on the corner. Every hour a new band comes on and we're singing songs of glory and praise. And then we're going to have a big water slide. And at the end, they're going to hit a baptismal tank. Peter, the manager, looking for Jesus Christ, superstar. You know how much of that is going on in the church? Hello? And how many of you have fallen in love with that rather than the Messiah, the Son of God, the Word of God? Jesus not interested in remaining a localized guru and healer. Who is this guy? That's Mark's question. Who is this guy? It's God in the flesh. It's God in the flesh. In prayer, we assume the Father told Jesus to move on and go down the road and take the message of the kingdom of God elsewhere. For Jesus, the message takes precedence over popularity. Hello? The message takes precedence over popularity. The message takes precedence over becoming a superstar. The message takes precedence over anything else. It's the message. Verses 14 and 15, to preach the kingdom of God is near and to repent and to believe, and moving to the fishermen so that you can leave and follow, repent, believe, leave, follow, which means you cannot become a museum. Never the church of God should become a museum. It always has to be a church on the move because our king, Messiah, is always on the move. Hello? Hello? Another thing that Mark tells us here is enthusiasm is not to be confused with faith. Hello? You know, so many of us, you know, we have a personal experience of, of how we experience the Holy Spirit, how we experience salvation. For me, it was tears. That I, I would go with Pastor Betty and her family to church, and I would sit in the pew, and, and as soon as I walked through the door, even before I accepted Jesus, I would cry. And I couldn't stop myself from crying. I didn't understand it. I thought it was called bananas. 
I really did, because I didn't understand. I didn't get the concept uh, yet. And, and then I said before I wouldn't sing, and, but then I got in my car and I cried. And then I got with the home and I cried. I said, where's this coming from? And it was the Spirit of God tugging me. But that was my experience. That was my experience. See, the, the crying, the tears, or the goosebumps, or the tingling, that's, not, that's just the outward uh, experience or manifestation of the Spirit working within me. What's important is not to recapture the tears or recapture the goosebumps or the tingling feelings. It's to recapture your love for Jesus. Hello? Hello? Robert uh, Farrar Kaplan said, the Messiah was not going to save the world by the miraculous, hello? Or band-aid interventions, a storm call here, a crowd fed there, a mother-in-law cured back down the road. Rather, it was going to be saved by the means of a deeper, dark, left-handed ministry at the center, which laid the cross. Those things are all great things, miracles, and God taking care of us, and God interceding on our behalf, or interventing in our behalf, or interrupting in our behalf. But that cross, not that one, but the real one on Calvary full of blood and nails, that's what saved you. That's what saved me. It wasn't a polished Jesus Christ superstar play or movie. It was an ugly cross in the middle of a junkyard. And because he died in a junkyard where there was human flesh, dead flesh, and uh, everybody's garbage, he changed that landscape and he gave it life. That's what he's done to us as human beings. Jesus came, preached the gospel. He came also to challenge the power of Satan, which is evident in our first chapter. We're still in chapter one. We haven't even got a chat of chapter one yet. However good and pleasant and popular it may be for him to heal large numbers of people, he realizes his vocation. His vocation is the following. It's the same thing that Pastor Sheila, Pastor Betty, and myself and other pastors have submitted to when we were ordained a call. The business, the administration, the people that want to be good managers, like Peter, good for you. But I was called to preach and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and I'm here today because when I was called to preach, before I accepted Jesus, I had a mouth that every third or even second word started with an F. And I had other adjectives that made that F sound pretty good. But somehow, the Spirit of the living God touched my lips, gave me strength to study, even though I came from the streets, and strength to graduate, because I have a call to preach. I have a call to preach. Not to preach a popularity contest, not to preach a theme park with a Christian theme park, but to preach Jesus Christ, Messiah, come to earth, crucified, risen, ascended, for you, for you, to give you life, and that more abundantly. See, Jesus sets the example of availability to God for us. Sets the example. He makes no excuses. He makes no excuses. See, if you would study the life of Jesus, you would see an unreserved availability to the will of God. Unreserved. He doesn't have to say, oh, let me time to pray about it and think about it. He knows I'm ready when God calls. Are you? I'm ready when God calls. Jesus never separated the importance of words and actions. They went hand in hand. He knew also that prayer will never do the work for us, but prayer will strengthen us in our prayer. 
Hello? Prayer will never do the work from us. That's why you need to get up from your feet and move. But it will strengthen you when you get up from your knees to do the work of the Lord. There was an old preacher that he told a story about a student who bought the best of everything to prepare himself for ministry. He had books. He had a special book rest. Then he had a fancy chair, too, to make his study real great. And he got all the needed necessities to be a student of the Word of God. And then the first time he sat down in that chair, he fell asleep. Fell asleep. He had good intentions, but he fell asleep. I remember a guy that studied with us in Europe, and he was cramming for an exam. And then when we went to write the exam the next morning, we seen him and we said, Peter, did you get some sleep? He said, no. And he came in with a big thermos of German coffee, a pretty strong coffee. He's put it there. And no, no more than five minutes passed, I looked at Peter, and he was gone asleep. He said, all night drinking coffee, trying to stay away for the, awake for the exam, and he fell asleep. Anybody done Fell asleep during the exam. See, the Hebrew concept of praying is not only listening, but obeying. You don't just hear information. You begin to let it germinate in you and impregnate you and, and may it form you. So it moves from information to formation there. See, a set aside time, a set aside time of solitarity, soli, solitarity prayer or quiet time to the Lord is best when it acts as a springboard to service. Hello? Not just praying and then expect somebody else to do what God wants. Hello? Expecting somebody else to do what God wants you to do. You know what we learned from King Jesus in this passage? We learned that King Jesus directed his calendar. The calendar didn't direct him. Hello? King Jesus directed his calendar. The calendar did not direct him. Then Mark says he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues, driving out demons. The third time in chapter 1 that he's driving out demons, so pay attention. There is a war going on. There's a battle going on. The miracles and the exorcisms never stopped happening because they went elsewhere. See, the disciples thought if we stay in Capernaum, that's where the miracles are happening. And Jesus says, everyone, when Peter said, everyone's looking for you, and Jesus said, let's go elsewhere, the miracles followed for Jesus moved. It was beyond Capernaum. Now we can say, is there anything beyond Elmsdale? Yes. If we go in the spirit of God and we listen, and we can go to Mimagesha, we can go to Time Valley, we can go wherever we want. But to think that we have to build a museum here and all the people got to come here is wrong theology. You need to move where God's moving you and guiding you. I like what this person said. The pastor on the church's itch to be where the action is should be resisted because Jesus resisted, right? The spirit of the crowds involves not repentance. I like this. It's from Mark, Mark Lane. Uh, come. The spirit of the crowds involved not repentance, but attraction to Jesus, former of miracles. See, Jesus came to preach the word of the Lord. He came to say, repent, believe, leave, follow. And they're looking for miracles. So Jesus knew that the crowd wasn't interested in repentance. The crowd was only interested in another sign and wonder, another miracle. What will it be, Jesus Christ or King Jesus, Lord Messiah? Are we following the crowds or are we following the king? On Thanksgiving Day, it's a good time to ask that question. Who are you following? Who are you following? Oh. I love this. I shared it with the worship team if they read the email. 
I shared it on our page after we discussed it on Whole Life Worship Bible Studies series. And I think I'm going to share it today again as we close. It's from N.T. Wright, as you can see there. Worship is nothing more nor less than love on its own. Before the beloved. The Father is our beloved, isn't he? Fall in love with Jesus. Read the Song of Songs. Don't think about your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Think about Jesus. Okay? Then if you want, you can add the other part too. That's up to you. Just as the Eucharist, which we just celebrate, the Lord's table as the climax of worship, is love embracing the beloved, intimate relationship with God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and so be strengthened for service. So prayer on the moving towards the mission, restoration of life, then taking this body broken for you, this blood spilled for you, and receiving the wholeness that God has for you. Never static. Never static. Always moving on. I love what Eugene Peterson says, to follow Jesus is as much or maybe even more about feet as it is about our ears and our eyes. Where are your feet going? Where are your feet? See, God is most available to those who are most available to him. That's what Jesus teaches. Did you get that? God is most available to those who are most available to him. As the worship team comes, we cannot lower the bar on the importance of prayer and building a relationship. But you know what also prayer meetings do? For those who know what I'm talking about, it does not only build a relationship between me and my God, it builds a relationship between those who have gathered with me to pray. Not only do I become closer to God and become more intimate with God, but those that come to a gathered corporate meeting of prayer become closer with each other. That's what we're called to be. And for those that can remember those type of prayer meetings and like that, where it didn't just God fell on us, but God moved amongst us and we shared his love one with the other. So, here's a question. If Jesus needed to spend precious hours in prayer, what does this suggest for our own set of priorities? Let us stand. Now, we're not going to pray with you at the altar, but if you need to come to the altar, that's fine, because we're going to sing about the sweet hour of prayer. And let the Spirit check your heart. Don't look for Jesus Christ, superstar. Look for Jesus Christ, the Lord Messiah, our high priest who continues to pray on our behalf. Blessed be his name.